the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. After the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Time for the interview segment with Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined by Jonathan V. Swan of Axios. Follow him on Twitter at Jonathan V. Swan. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you? I'm great, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on an elegant interview. I played it three times this morning. I watched it last night, the three and a half minute clip from Axios on HBO with Prime Minister Khan of Pakistan. And I really want to talk more about technique than actually what was said. The headlines about what was said will come up. But first, tell me, when did you schedule it? Where did you tape it? And how long was the sit-down? So our team has been talking to Prime Minister Khan's team for a number of months. And I found out about a, a week before the interview that they'd agreed to do it. Uh, we did it in Islamabad. I was in Islamabad last week. Um, and he sat for a bit more than an hour. And the final cut was something around 13 minutes. Unfortunately, I'd, I'd like the whole thing to be, you know, uh, run as is, but uh, such as television, uh, it was run at uh, 13 minutes. Now, it's a two-camera shoot. I believe it's a two-camera shoot. I didn't see a third camera. How long did it take them, and did you use a Pakistani crew or an American crew fly with you? So a bit of a mixture. I had, um, uh, we had one camera uh, fly with me and a producer, and then we had a local crew of sound, another camera. I think it was – I think we had a – static third camera and two moving cameras. So I do think it was a three camera shoot, but um, two of the cameras, the style they do, they, they hold the camera and sort of have this sense of movement uh, throughout the interview. Okay. Now I'm astonished by your preparation, but especially since you have a 10 month old at home. So that's one of the things I can't even believe that <laughs> you were allowed to, you were allowed to leave for, for a week to go to Islamabad. Hey honey, I'm going to Islamabad. Take care of the baby. I don't, you know, I, <laughs> How did how'd that go over at home? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know that's that sensitive subject, Hugh. Uh, oh, I lived it. I know. Hey, <laughs> say, hey, honey, I'm going on the road to talk to the Dalai Lama, yeah, which yeah. happened in '95. Don't worry about those babies. And did what? And so, right. so, but right. you have a long yeah. plane trip. You have a long time to prepare. How do you prepare? And when did you set? When did you settle on? I'm going to bring up the Uyghurs because I think you build the interview around that clearly. So um, for an interview, for pretty much any interview I do, I approach it like a reporting uh, sub. Like, uh, 
the interviews that I love historically are the really deeply prepared interviews. We don't see that many of them these days. And I know you talk about this a lot, Hugh, and this is what you you try to do. It's this old school, you know, where the interviewer comes really prepared. And actually, I, I find that the subject, once they see that you've done the yard work, are more willing to, to open up and talk. Um, Oriana Falaci used to do these kinds of interviews where she would go and do a head of state, but you clear she's done months of reporting, talking to sources, sources in Pakistan, sources in the United States, whatever the interview is, and really just picking people's brains, what are the areas that I really need to pry out? And one thing that I saw pretty quickly when I started studying him was he'd been doing this very, very... Uh, vocal campaign against Islamophobia in the West. You know, he, he did a speech at the United Nations about it. He's been excoriating Europe and the United States and hasn't said a peep about a genocide of Muslims just across his border in Western China. So, well, that's interesting. Um, and it creates an obvious setup for a question, which is the first part being, Tell me why you're so exercised about Islamophobia in the West and feel the need to talk about it publicly. Obviously, Europe is further away from Islamabad than Xinjiang. And obvious follow-up is, well, what's going on there? And I thought it was a very um, powerful device to illuminate what is one of the biggest problems we're seeing around the world, which is China, through the Belt and Road Initiative, is spending... Some people think more, it's going to be more than a trillion, certainly hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, basically, it, it, when it comes to these vulnerable developing countries, it, it's looking more and more like a form of neocolonialism. I mean, we're seeing that in Sri Lanka, where the Sri Lankans couldn't, couldn't repay the loans for a port. So China said, OK, we're taking the port. We're taking all the land around it. And there are real moral costs and consequences that attend that um, investment. And this is a perfect example. You have a leader of a majority Muslim nation, more than 200 million people, who, who is positioning himself as a leader of speaking out against Islamophobia, unwilling to even acknowledge the genocide of more than a million Muslim Uyghurs just across his border. So that was the thinking for that line of questioning. Now, an elegant interview is like Olympic diving. You have to get lift off of the board, and you have to go higher to get more questions in. So your your jump is the Islamophobia question, but you gave him a chance to answer. By the way, this is what distinguishes—you mentioned Oriana Falaci. No one's going to know who that is, who's under the age of 50, but she is the gold standard internationally. I always cite Brian Lamb domestically as people who give you a chance to answer the question, and you did that, Jonathan. You gave him a lot of time. He went on at length to make what he thought was a great point, but he was actually just digging his grave in the interview because then he had to lie down in that. And his attempt to deflect the cashmere, which I'll come back again, you cut him off at that point. You said the evidence, first he denied, that's not what the Chinese tells you, the evidence is overwhelming. Had you prepared to interject that? Because the first response from my friends who defend the CCP is, that's not true. And you came right back, and he retreated. I noticed that he retreated. And you had uh, sterilization, uh, destruction of the mosques, the imprisonment in the re-education camps, uh, the, the organ transplant. You had it all down there. Were you anticipating the deflection that the Chinese tell us it's not true? 
I, I actually hadn't heard him deny. I've watched all pretty much every English language interview he'd ever done, um, uh, and he he actually I hadn't seen him deny that it was happening. He had two stock responses. The first one he'd given to the Financial Times. He said, "I don't know much about that." And I think if he'd said that to me, I might have said something like, you know, have you have you Googled it? You know, it's available on Google, a lot of this information. You know, there's, you know, report. You know, I would have probably started listing some source material that he might refer to. But, uh, and the other one is, you know, we like to deal with this in private. I actually wasn't expecting him to, to try and contest the fact that it was happening. The, Right now, we have so much evidence. We have witness testimonies, or I mean, witness victim testimonies, people who've come out of these camps um, bravely sharing their stories. As for the destruction of mosques, we have satellite imagery. Um, you know, we have internal Chinese government documents that have leaked out. So it's sort of like saying, you know, there is no way at this point, it, it doesn't us the laugh test to deny that this is happening. So I, I really had to, for the benefit of the viewer, step in at that point because it's just not a feasible question. And he did, to be fair, he kind of backed off at that point and moved and pivoted to, well, the Chinese are very good to us and, and we like to deal with things privately. Oh, he had four lines. Then he retreated to Kashmir. Then he retreated to right. uh, behind closed doors. So he had four lines of right. defense, and you overwhelmed each of them. But I am curious. You just said a key to prep. You watched every English language interview he did. That's one of the key things. If you're going to interview a head of state, go watch them. But the second thing, John, that I'm really curious about, you co-produced this, Axios does, with HBO. Did HBO know your question set? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't deal with the executives there, but um, our team, we have a very tight-knit team, and um, we work with our, our two directors, Perry Peltz and Matt O'Neill, who are really talented. And we, I mean, the other benefit I have is we have excellent producers, and they do a lot of research for me, and we're constantly workshopping questions and going back and forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I beforehand, I mean... Now, a lot of the interview is on your feet. Think, you know, you can't script a whole interview. You have to listen. No, you, you did. And let me give an example. He mentioned you know, on yeah. my border, and you jumped in right. immediately. You were listening. You said, right. but it's on your border. And that is the key to a great, you've got to listen right. to the answers. Right, right. So they have a broad idea of what my arc of the interview is, um, you know, what are the, the key questions. But, you know, you as you said, you know, you have to listen. You have to be prepared if the interviewer takes you off on a tangent that's really interesting that you weren't expecting. You have to be prepared to throw your questions aside and just follow that um, tangent. Now, this, uh, but so, it also brings yeah. up, uh, you're an Australian, yeah. you know, I know you're becoming an American, but you're an Aussie. You know what China has done to Australia because of their diplomacy. You know that they, they fight back against the NBA. They're, they were going to punish Fast and Furious 9. Is HBO, did they know, did they green light you're going hard on the CCP? Because the CCP is going to hit HBO. And they might hit Axios too, Jonathan. That's how they play. We didn't even talk about it, Hugh. Honestly, Good for you. I've, I've, I've literally never talked about it with anyone. No one's ever told me to. And if they did, I'd just tell them to go, you know, no one can tell me what to do. Uh, I'm, no, I'm not going to censor myself for any corporate interest. 100%, but... But and you know that's not you, the case in the business. 
I really mean this, Hugh. If I was ever at an organization where someone tried to get me to censor a line of questioning on China, I would quit on the spot. It's not happening. Good so for you. I, we need very that. Clear. Now, last night when I saw your interview, I tweeted out immediately, now we need people to ask the same questions of American corporate interest in China and American athletes and sports leagues, because genocide is genocide, Jonathan. It's a different category of evil. Uh, Do you see that happening anywhere? I mean, I can tell you right now, if I get a big uh, corporate interview and the person has uh, significant business interest in China and they're doing uh, large-scale business with the Chinese Communist Party— I'm going to ask a line of questioning on this, and I think they, they ought to be held to account. And um, they ought to be asked whether they can countenance uh, what's going on in Xinjiang. It's, you know, some say the largest imprisonment of an um, ethno-religious group since the Holocaust. So, again, we're not talking about, uh, you know, a spotty human rights record. We're talking about one of the great atrocities of our time. Yes, it's up there with the Cambodian genocide and uh, and with the uh, the, uh, the, Rohingya, the the Myanmar Burma people. I can't remember the Rohingya. the The fact of the matter is that you got there, you did this. What was the prime minister like at the end of the interview? Did he feel gigged? Because a lot of people will say, "Oh, that was an ambush." No, it's not. It's a completely straightforward set of questions that he walked right into, and that you followed up fairly. But was he cool to you at the end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say, <laughs> I would say uh, you know, we did sort of sit around, the Prime Minister and I, uh, uh, talking a whole, a whole lot um, at the end of the interview. Uh, yeah, you see, sure. that's when you know you've scored. And by score, I mean you get to the truth, is when they're out of the room in a hurry and somebody gets fired in the press office. So how quickly did you scoot from Pakistan? Oh, look, I mean, we had a flight book. I didn't, I didn't, you know, change our um, schedule and everything. And, you know, his team was very hospitable to us. Uh, we, we didn't have, honestly, I didn't feel unsafe or anything like that. We left, we left at um, very oh, early in the morning. Not unsafe. The, the, the day after. I, I, yeah. I've had the experience with Ben Stiller where it wasn't my camera. And I asked him tough questions about the treatment of the mentally incapacitated in, in uh something about Mary, and he held on to the tape. His team held the tape. It took me wow. months to get the tape. And if you don't control the camera, or they might come for the tape, I don't think they would ever hurt a journalist in Pakistan. They might in China. I don't know if you're going to China anytime soon, Jonathan. But you controlled the tape. No one ever asked for the tape. No one tried to work you on the editing. Oh, well, people always try and work you um, on the sort of, well, trying to find out what you're putting in and whatever, but like it doesn't matter. I mean, that's just like whatever. You, you, no one tried to get the tape from us. We had full control over it. Um, that was never a concern. And did you work in the all. editing room? Did you actually oversee the edit? No, and I wish. Uh, unfortunately, just because of time crunch, I mean, a lot of the editing was happening when I was on the flight back. So it had to. Uh, the team just, you know working basically 24-7 from the time we did the interview. So, no, but um, one thing I really want to do, and my dad, who's a great interviewer in Australia, has told me to do this, is to sit in the editing room and watch how they edit because it will help you. Again, I'm sure you – I mean, you 100%. I'm sure – Yeah, because yeah, then you realise in real time, it helps you make better decisions about – 
question, getting what you need, you know, et cetera. So um, sometimes I, I always watch back um, when I can the full raw tape because you learn, well, gosh, I was blabbing on a bit there. I could have really been more efficient or I missed this opportunity or why didn't I do that? Or, you know, there's all sorts of things. It's like game tape, right? You watch not only And, and you will also, whatever matters to you the most will matter to the audience the most. And the editors might not, they're not maligned. They just might not hear what matters to you. And that's what will matter to the audience. I thought you got the money in there, but I, I just want to say best interview on China I've seen. I hope you're on 60 Minutes soon. I hope Axios's contract is short and you end up, because it's an art, Jonathan. You got it down. You're one of the young masters, so my hat is off to you. Who Who's next? And do you think that they're going to start avoiding you like... Uh, Biden. I want oh, Biden. <laughs> oh, I, I hope the president does. I mean, you're fair, right? You've got trying. the... We've been uh, trying. Well, if you get to see him, talk to him about China as well. Jonathan Swan from Axios, congratulations. When does it air? Well, no, it, it, it aired in full last night. On okay, I thought it was next Sunday. I'm glad yeah, to hear. Okay, so yeah, I haven't yeah, seen it. Yeah. I just saw the clip. So it's up there at Axios and HBO. Jonathan Swan, thank you. Congratulations. Talk yeah. to you soon. Appreciate it. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.